Hello and good morning, evening or afternoon, depending on when you are tuning into this latest edition of Edie's Susty Talks, our now long-standing series of one-on-one -on -one interviews with sustainability leaders from across the world and from different sectors to help us all stay a little bit more connected and a little bit more informed, even if we are pressed for time. For our Climate Finance Week this week, I'm delighted to have on the line Peter Backman, who is the Managing Director of the Sustainable Infrastructure Division at Gresham House. So thank you so much for your time, Peter. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me, Sarah. No, thank you for coming on um, and and taking the time. I'd, I say we always start with an introduction. Um, for, for those of us that are working in sustainable investment or sustainable journalism, we've probably heard of Gresham House. But for those who are tuning in that may be just hearing about it, um, it'd be great to have a brief introduction to the organisation um, and a little bit about your role as well. Sure. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, look, so Gresham House, unfortunately, isn't quite a fully household name yet, but um, hopefully it will be soon. Gresham is a listed asset manager on the London Stock Exchange. It has about eight billion pounds under management uh, with the market leaders in, in areas such as forestry, with the largest in Europe. Um, we've also created Europe's largest battery storage fund uh, called GRID. Uh, we've also got second largest in terms of venture capital trust investing. We've also got a large social and affordable housing division. And then you've got my division, which is called the Sustainable Infrastructure Division, where all of our capital, where we've got two flagship funds and now five focused um, offshoots, co-investment vehicles, where they're all really focused on trying to invest into the big environmental and social problems and, and creating real asset-based solutions for those. And that's what we call sustainable infrastructure, profitable real asset-based solutions to those big environmental and social problems. And my role in that is I, I run the team, I'm co-founder manager of the vehicles, and I really have been around from the start of this strategy development to try to really focus on expanding it out and, and taking a more holistic approach to trying to tackle these big sustainability problems. Great. Well, I'm sure you have a super long to-do list um, and there's loads of things we could talk about, but I think it's important to start with, yeah, essentially Gresham House focuses and definitions, because this is something we always get into in sustainable investing, it's a sustainable infrastructure investment. What what are the focuses? What are the priorities? What are the metrics that you um, use when when choosing which projects to to back? So I, I think probably the first thing that the way that we think about it is that everything really is trying to work backwards from these big environmental and social problems. And, and we think that there is huge opportunity to address those. And the way that we think about it is almost the bigger the problem, the bigger the opportunity if you're able to solve them. And so we kind of look at actually the, the problem as the opportunity as well. And so what we're looking for ultimately are really, really long term big environmental and social problems and trying to work backwards from those and say, what can you actually tackle with some sort of real asset based solution? So a lot of things you can tackle with technology, but there's a lot of things that you can't. So a lot of things you need some new physical product or service that is low carbon or more sustainable to enable us to live in a more sustainable way. So we've really boiled that quite wide scale, I guess, um, problem down into six focus areas, which we think can really combine the environmental and social outputs that we want, but with really profitable assets. Because I, whilst I'll talk quite a lot about impact generally, these things have to be profitable. Because I guess my mantra is unless it's profitable, it's not sustainable. And so we really try to you know, focus in on these things actually have to make money as well. So the six areas that we tackle, one is what we call resource efficiency. 
and, and so we think that, for example, the way that we make almost everything needs to change in terms of the amount of land that we use, the water we use, the amount of chemicals and pesticides. So we think that resource efficiency is a great thematic and, and an example of that is our business Fisher Farms, where we've built the world's largest fully automated vertical farm and that fundamentally can transform the way that we grow food in terms of land use, water use, chemicals, shelf life. It's a huge amount of benefits. It's 1900 times better, for example, from a carbon perspective. So really good example of resource efficiency. Second one is around decarbonisation. And for us, it's not so much about probably traditional solar and wind, but it's more about what are some of the other aspects of industry, for example, that need to be decarbonised and how do you tackle them at source? A third area that links quite nicely into that is around what we call waste solutions. So what we're doing is trying to take discrete waste problems and provide some sort of circular approach to turn that waste into something that ultimately can replace a fossil fuel. Um, so we've got a business, for example, there called Waste Not, where we take commercial and industrial waste would otherwise go to landfill, and we use that to turn it into a pellet, and that pellet can replace coal in the cement and steel industries, two of the most polluting industries out there, and this single plant can avoid about 800,000 tonnes of CO2 a year. 800,000 tonnes of CO2 a year, it's a, it's a huge amount, about half a million cars off the road. So that's where waste solutions quite nicely tackles back into decarbonisation. The fourth area that we talk about is digital inclusion. Obviously, we're doing this, this um, podcast via internet and, and particularly for people out in the rural parts of the country, they've often been the ones left behind. So we're thinking about trying to give them good internet connectivity, it allows us to do remote work, remote health, remote learning, all the sorts of things that we need to really try to tackle some of the social problems that we see. The final two areas that are probably a little bit different to maybe some of my peers, one is around health and education. So we think there's a really big part to play in providing, for example, better children's nurseries because that allows people to get back to work. Getting people back to work gets you work first diversity. Diversity in the workforce has a really big part to play in, in how we can try to tackle productivity. Uh, I've seen one study that says if we could get workforce diversity at scale, that's worth about $27 trillion globally. That's about a third or a quarter of global GDP just by getting diversity back to the workforce. So children's nursery can have a small part to play in trying to do that. And health and education is an area for us. And then the final area, the sixth area that we tackle is what we call regeneration or nature-based solutions. So I think we've all spent a lot of time looking at the climate problems, but actually we've probably lost sight of the fact that a lot of the climate problems stem from the way that we've used nature as essentially a free public good. And that's not sustainable. You know, we've we've fundamentally trashed our, our nature and there's a lot of um, local authorities in this country, for example, that have declared nature emergencies. And, and for good reason, you know, we have really treated our country as um, a free public good and not properly accounted for the value of nature. And so we think that by building what we're doing is these big landscape scale, 50 to 100 hectare habitat banks, we could fundamentally turn the planet back into what it looks like before we or looked like before we came can have a really big power in terms of nature. And one stat I'll leave you with, um, Sarah, before I stop there is that if we did nature based solutions globally, we could get about 10 gigatons worth of CO2 savings a year. 10 gigatons is the emissions of the US, the EU and Japan combined by doing nature based solutions. So I think we have to look at the power of nature and how do we build nature back better. And that's really what we think about in our final vertical around regeneration. 
So hopefully that's given you a pretty quick snapshot, Sarah, across all the things that we're trying to tackle, what we focused in on. And then, yeah, as I've alluded to, some of the impacts very much are around what sort of level of carbon emissions we can avoid or reduce, what level of um, impact we can produce in terms of water use, land use, or in terms of some of the social metrics, it's about new jobs, new careers, um, access to connectivity. You know, for example, in our digital inclusion um, area, we did a study which actually looked at by providing rural internet um, out to the people of Cornwall, we could generate about one pound in, 15 pounds out. So about 600 million pounds from our investment into our business wilderness could be created in terms of economic, social and environmental value in uh, very tangible, measurable aspects. So impact and measuring that is really, really key for us because for us, we actually think impact can drive financial returns. I know. I like the word snapshot. I'm going to counter you with that. I wanted to zoom in on something that you've mentioned already, which is that you mentioned that ultimately it, it's not sustainable if it's not profitable. Yes, it's nice to do impact investing, but we need to get that sweet spot of um, not only benefits to society and the environment, but also the economy um, as well. And I wanted to come back to that because we're seeing at the moment lots of debate and dis discussion under which the UK government is being criticised for failing to make an environment in which clean tech and nature-based investments are profitable, that um, we're essentially falling behind the US, the EU, China, other countries in doing that. So I wanted to get your view on um, whether companies like Gresham House can move ahead of policy here or whether we need some additional policy support to make these things truly profitable and unlock even more finance. So look, I think for sure we are probably falling behind. Like if you look at the scale of the UK, US's IRA, um, that is truly game-changing in terms of the scale of, of capital available to try to deploy and support new technologies. So I think without some type of intervention, as much as financiers and investors like us would want to try to change the course of things, there is naturally going to be probably a flight of even even just people skills to, to go to the US. Um, so I think we've got a really big challenge on our hands to try to stay at the forefront of what we're trying to do here. I think what the UK government, for example, has done very well is in things like the Environment Act, which has brought in this mandatory requirement for biodiversity net gain, which is a pretty neat policy tool. Actually, it's not dissimilar to how the government treated organic waste going into landfill, and they brought in a thing called the landfill tax, and that almost single-handedly took organic waste out of landfill, and, and obviously organic waste causes a lot of methane when it's landfilled, and, and therefore that was quite a neat policy tool. So I think we can get ahead of it in a lot of instances for example, vertical farming, there isn't a specific regulatory legal framework there. But what we've recognised is that, that over time, there is going to be probably some type of tax or externality cost on businesses that are using a lot of land, a lot of water that are effectively damaging the planet. And I think at the very least, by taking a proactive approach like what we have, we think we've got a, an asset that's very, very future-proofed. Because I think and I hope over time that generally externalities are going to be taxed or are going to be captured and people have to take that into their business models. So for things like vertical farming, we think that can fundamentally change the way that we grow food and that will 
we think become valuable. And, and in speaking to all the supermarkets, actually, they want it just because we could be very consistent and certain with supply. So actually, by trying to tackle some of these big environmental problems, we've also created a mechanism that really suits ultimately the consumers of this product. So the retailers and then our end buyers like ourselves. So you have to get ahead of it. You have to think about what do these big problems mean? How do you then create some sort of profitable real asset-based solutions to those challenges, call it that? And if you can get that right confluence of macro factors, a structure where you can create the right sort of downside protections, then I think you can create investable assets like what we have ahead of a regulatory change. But I think ultimately to get this to mobilize at scale, we probably scale, we probably need both. We need some sort of regulatory support, plus we need forward-thinking investors like ourselves that can see some of the challenges and, and where you can potentially make money from tackling them. Completely understand that. And we've we've talked there about like the US and the UK in terms of subsidies and other interventions. It's pretty clear that we can't outspend the US in terms of dollar value. But as you mentioned, there are some other things that we we could do. Um, and something I wanted to touch on there is about mindsets, policy making and popular debate in the two countries, because at the moment we're seeing sort of, as you say, increased tax on externalities, increased reporting requirements in the UK and EU. Whereas on the other side of the Atlantic, we hear a lot of noise, at least, about the anti-ESG investing movement. So I wanted to get your take on whether that's something to actually be concerned about, whether it could impact the UK and whether it is what investors actually want or whether it's just mainly noise, really. Look, I, I think even the fact that we're having that debate is really quite damning of some of the states in the US. Um, you know, I do know from secondhand experience, call it that, that some of the states actively do um, discourage their managers to invest into ESG-focused strategies, which I think is just crazy. But it speaks to the scale and extent of the rent-seeking behaviour of the big oil companies. You know, they have a lot of the US politicians in their pockets and, and therefore they've been able to create that sort of effect. But I think ultimately when you look at the US asset managers like ourselves, they place the importance of ESG really up there in terms of the key things they look for because if you're not aware of your ESG type impacts, you are creating businesses that are potentially going to be stranded assets and, and you're not really protecting themselves from future potential regulatory change. So I think this anti-ESG movement is a little bit of, it's a little bit overdone. I think ultimately any manager that has actually looked into the merits of investing sustainably realises that actually doing the things well, following this sort of general ESG principle is ultimately good for your investment policy and your investment outcomes. So I think it is a bit overdone. I think what we've seen also in the UK, for example, is that investors love the sorts of things that we're doing. They really get the impact and drive returns. They want to see positive influence and impact on some of the things that we talk about. A lot of our investors are really keen to understand exactly what, for example, UN SDGs we're tackling and what are the underlying targets beneath those that we can address with the sorts of things that we're doing. So I think that UK investors are actually really forward-looking, they realise the value of this and, and in no way in their minds is there any sort of real anti-ESG movement. If anything, it's the opposite. I think every year we get more requests for, from our investors to understand what we're doing on an impact perspective and 
what we see is that actually a lot of their members, so their pension fund contributors, they want to know what, how their money is being used to do good. And a lot of them recognise that if they don't tackle these environmental and social problems, their pensioners are going to retire into a pretty unpleasant world. And I think that's the tipping point that hopefully gets the pensioners, the members of these pension schemes, pushing their managers to do more and do good. And that's all I can ever hope for is that you know, we need trillions of dollars really to, to tackle the problems that we face. And ultimately, we really need to try to mobilise these really big pools of pension fund money and insurance monies to, to tackle the problems. And you mentioned the ENS in the ESG there, but surely the G is a part as well. Surely pensioners don't want their funding going to businesses with no governance that are taking lobby money left, right and centre exactly. that have poor labour records. Surely the, surely they care about the G as well, I'd like to think. <laughs> they do. They do. Look, they, they care about all of it. You know, pensioners, the, the members really want to know that they're backing and supporting well-run businesses. That, that I, I kind of look at ESG as just running a business in a really sustainable way. That makes sense. And I wanted to, I know we're running short on time, but I wanted to cover one last thing, if you wouldn't mind, in that you mentioned the UNSDGs there, and you've also, we've gone over how Gresham House is investing in these six different pillars, but something as well that we've been seeing a lot is debate to ensure that ESG is done properly, that each of the letters is weighted, um, that you're doing green investments that, don't undermine biodiversity or undermine social benefits. So a sort of just transition um, investment approach, if if you will. So I wanted to get your views on how we make sure um, that not only yourselves, but other asset managers are looking at this in a holistic way and not just going for a little uh, green tick box. Yeah. And look, I, I just hate this whole greenwashing aspect like that really is um abhorrent and people that are doing it should be pretty ashamed of themselves so i, I guess generally the way that we think about it you know, this whole just transition is a really good way to think about how to tackle these problems on a holistic way we've actually been a founding participant of the impact um, investment institute's approach on the just transition um, so we think that people do need to take a, a a wider view and look at how people are going to be affected by these um, industry changes and and ultimately we need to be trying to find a very fair and balanced way in which the world develops. Um, you know, we need to provide good opportunity for everyone. We need to be providing long-term careers in areas that are sustainable um, and that has to be done by taking a diversified approach to how you hire, ensuring that you have that kind of workforce diversity in terms of not just background but thought um, all of these things are really key. And, and I think that just transition mindset is something that's really key focus for us. We put into all of our investment companies, define sustainability and, and DE&I policies, and we track it and measure it and monitor it. And they're the sorts of things that I think that ultimately will start to bring change. And even in my own team, I've got you know, very much at least 50-50 balance on background, gender, all the key things that you have to to ensure diversity of thought. And I think you know, you really got to walk the walk before you can talk the talk in, in these sorts of areas. So I'm hopeful that there are asset managers that have certainly joined our Just Transition Challenge and are looking at things in a more holistic way. So I, I think people that get it, that can see the value of doing things in the right way, ultimately can, can see the, the benefits to their bottom line performance.
that all makes sense and it's as you say the voices in the room very much do impact the outcomes on the ground um so peter i'm aware that we're nearly out of time for this susty talk so thank you for coming on and for this yeah really whistle stop tour of all things esg investing thank you very much my pleasure thanks for having me sarah